The USS Torch, which is on the screen there, was commissioned by the United States Navy during the Second World War in 1944. It served our nation until 1968, serving in particular throughout sections of the Second World War, sinking a number of Japanese ships, and then also during the Lebanese conflict. One of the aspects of the Torsh that made it very unique is that during the length of its service, its entire service, it only lost one sailor in combat. Now, that was a young man by the name of Joseph Grant Snow. And the way he was lost is rather unique. He was lost off of the Atlantic coast near Portsmouth, New Hampshire, during a series of training exercises. As best they can tell, he was topside of the submarine, and in one of the dives, he did not get the word in time. The hatch was closed to go into the interior of the submarine, and the submarine did a dive. He was on top, washed overboard, and they never recovered his body. Joseph Grant was the, excuse me, Joseph Grant Snow again was the only sailor who lost his life on the Torsh in his 20-some years of service in the Navy. I want you to follow this. He was in the presence of the safety of that submarine. He was in the presence of the purpose of that submarine. But being in the presence of it and being in it were two different things. And because when that sub made the dive, he was in the presence of safety, but not in the place of safety, he got washed overboard and drowned. It wasn't enough to be in the presence of that sub. You had to be in it in order to survive a dive. And so many times, if we're not careful in our walk with the Lord, we're in the presence of the Lord, but we're not really in the safety of God's will. We may be in the presence of God, but we're not moving with the purpose that God has for us. So what does God do to get us to the place where we are moving with the purpose of God, living deep in the pre His presence, and in the safety of what it means to be in His presence. It's called the discipline of God. Now our theme for this year, our theme verse, is the joy of the Lord is our strength. But most of us do not associate joy with discipline. I can guarantee that about everybody in this room, when you were growing up and your parents went to discipline you, you didn't stand there and say, man, I am so ready for this discipline. I'm going to enjoy this so very much. And just bring it on, mama. Bring it on, daddy. I can't wait till it happens. What do we do? We try to deny it, cover it up, run in the other direction. And we didn't enjoy it one bit. Mark Lowry used to joke that when he used to get spankings as a kid, it took him a week to pull all the fuzz of the pillow out of his teeth from having grabbed a hold of that pillow and bowed down on him when he got to spanking, etc. I remember my mother used to tell me, David, you go to your bedroom. And I knew that was not for devotions when she said, David, you go to your bedroom. I knew what going to the bedroom meant. And she would say, get down on your knees. And it was not for prayer. 
And uh, then I would put my hands behind myself to protect myself and per- certain parts of my anatomy to which my mother would respond, you take those hands out. I'll hit those hands. You know, and I was like, oh, okay. And, uh, and then I've come, reached the conclusion that the, and I reached this as a child very early on in life, the only reason parents give their child a middle name is to use when they're about to let them have it. Because the only time I ever heard my middle name growing up, and when my middle name was spoken, David Edward Slayton, and when the Edwards came out, I knew Doomsday was just around the corner. That's the only time I ever heard my name. Any of y'all ever had that experience too? That, you know, the only time you hear your name. You'll hear your, that middle name when you get punished and at your funeral. That's the only time the middle name is bothered to be used. Well, we don't associate joy with discipline, but God's discipline is, oddly enough, a place of joy because that is where God is getting us not just in His presence, but in alignment with His will, His purpose for our lives, and at the place of safety of walking with Him. If you have your Bibles, I'd like for you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to begin with verse 3. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. And as you're turning there, my sermon outline is contained uh, within your bulletin. And I invite you, if you will, to follow along with us in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning with verse 3. Now, Hebrews, as we've seen in recent weeks, was written to a group of Hebrew Christians. We think they were living close to the city of Rome. They are about to undergo severe persecution for their faith. And this persecution has already begun. And they are being tempted to give up their faith and walk away from their faith. And when Jesus dominates the horizon of our lives, we're in good shape. But when we start going through difficult times in life, it is very easy for Jesus to begin to gradually ellipse off of the horizon of our life. And we begin to focus on the hardship and only on the hardship. We feel like the problems are just taking over our lives. And in some cases, we may even find ourselves saying stuff like, you know, before I start serving the Lord and trying to follow Jesus, life seemed to be going pretty smooth. And then when I started serving Jesus, these problems started coming up right and left. The difficulties started coming up right and left. And sometimes life seems to get more difficult and complicated and harsher when we're trying to live for the Lord as when we were not living for the Lord. And that's exactly what these Hebrew Christians had run into the persecution that they were enduring at this point. And so the writer here is writing to them because he's saying what you're going through is God's hand of discipline. And I want you to understand what God is up to in your life. Beginning with verse 3, consider him, speaking of Jesus, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. So that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises Every son whom he receives. Now, I want to point out something with some of the verbs that are being used here. First of all, he will speak in verse 5 of the discipline of the Lord. Then he's going to use another word that's translated in English the same, disciplines, in verse 6. And then he's going to use the word chastising. And he also uses the word reprove. 
Now, discipline, reprove, and chastising are three different words that increase in their intensity. In other words, God begins with discipline. He gets more intense in our lives with reproof. And then he really begins, pardon the expression, to jerk our chain when he starts chastising us. And we'll talk about that more in depth in a moment. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Notice what he begins to say to these believers. When you're disciplined, consider Jesus. Verse 3, considering him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you do not, you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. The writer to the Hebrews here is saying, when you go through seasons of discipline, I want you, instead of focusing on the harshness of the discipline, to focus on the greatness and the enduring power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus. Look at Him and focus on Him. And he says to them, give a careful assessment of Jesus. The word that's translated consider there in verse 3 is a mathematical term that was used in that day and meant to weigh up something carefully as to its value. And so what he's saying here is I want you to look at Jesus and I want you to estimate him. I want you to weigh him up according to his value. Consider him carefully in his endurance. Verse 4, he says, you've not gone yet to the place of shedding your own blood. In other words, he's saying you need to cut the drama. Some of you are just drama kings and drama queens because you're just saying, oh, we're suffering so much and it is so difficult and it's so hard to walk with Jesus. And he says, hey, you haven't been asked to shed your blood yet. You haven't been called upon to give up your life yet. He says, so cut the drama. What I want you to focus on rather is Jesus and what he went through. Notice verse 3. He says, I want you to consider Jesus, to estimate Jesus, to weigh his value and his endurance so that you won't grow weary or faint-hearted in your souls. And you see, one of the things that Satan loves to do with us and one of his strategies that he uses against us is to just wear us down. We use terms like burnout to express it. But Satan loves to just wear us down. He knows often he can take us out quicker and better, not by a one-time blow, but just staying on us day after day, week after week, situation by situation. I don't know about you, but often I find in my walk with the Lord, it's not a one-time hit that knocks me down. It's this grinding thing. It's just day after day, week after week in the same place that I keep getting just sort of worked on and worked on. And that's what he's talking about here when he says, don't get weary or faint-hearted. Don't let it just burn you out as Satan tries to wear you down. Now, he talks in verse 4 about our struggle against sin. 
And it's a fascinating word that he uses there because it was a military term and it meant to line up in a line of battle and to look face to face into the enemy. And so he's saying in our struggle against sin, he says, you're lined up like you're in a battle and you're looking into the face of the enemy. And he says that when you're doing that, don't be intimidated by the enemy. Don't give up when you're looking into the enemy. He's saying, look at Jesus. Don't focus on the enemy and stay in the struggle because you're looking at Jesus. You see, the devil knows if he can get us distracted, then he won't have long to get us defeated. And so when I'm lined up in that spiritual place of warfare, I've got to stay focused on Jesus and not focused on myself and not focused on the enemy that's in front of me so that I don't get worn down with what's up against us. Now, discipline. When God disciplines us, first thing we do is focus on Jesus. The second thing we do is the discipline means that we have the joy of belonging to Him. The joy of belonging to Him. The fact that He's disciplining us means He loves us and that we belong to Him. Now, most of us, when we were growing up and our parents disciplined us, we're not thrilled at the moment of discipline that we belonged to our parents and we belonged to that family. In fact, usually when we get disciplined, we wish we belonged to another family. And we wish we belonged to another set of parents. And we wish we lived in another household when the discipline would be poured on. Because our parent was saying to us, you belong to me. And because you're belonging to me, I'm going to jerk your chain. Because you're belonging to me, I'm going to correct you. I'm going to train you, etc. So when God disciplines us, it's his way of saying, hey, you're special to me. I love you. You belong to me. Now, he quotes here from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, when he says in verse 5, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. He's quoting from Proverbs. Nor be weary when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, the word discipline that he uses here repeatedly means training and corrective guidance. Training and corrective guidance. Now, if you train you got to do it over and over and over again. When God trains us, He takes us to the same lesson over and over and over again. Have you ever wanted to say to the Lord, I think I've learned my lesson. Do we have to keep going through this over and over again? And God is saying to us, I'm training you. And to make sure it gets through your head and into your heart, i got to take you through this over and over and over again. So that's that training. Now, he corrects us. He gives us corrective guidance. Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. Because this is how God uses his word in this process. All scripture, all of it, is breathed out by God and is profitable. For teaching. We say amen. We're going to learn from the word. And why don't we just skip over the rest of them. And go to verse 17. For reproof. For correction. For training in righteousness. That's how he's going to use the word of God in my life. I don't get to pick and choose how God uses His Word in my life. He outlines how He uses the Word in my life. 
for teaching, for proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, which means, folks, that often when we read the Bible and we study the Bible, what we encounter is not necessarily what we want to encounter. God takes His Word and He says, there's a place in your life that needs to be changed, there's a place in your life that needs to be corrected, and I'm going to use my Word to correct you, to train you, I'm going to use my Word to confront you. Have you ever opened up the Word of God, read a passage of Scripture, and jumped back from it and said, that was tough? Have you ever jumped back from it and said, I don't know that I want to read anymore? Because that was tougher than what I anticipated. How many of us have gotten up and looked at the Bible sitting in our house and said, I don't think I'm going to read it today because I'm not sure what it's going to say to me that I'm going to enjoy. That's part of the use of the word to correct us and to train us and to help us. But listen, when I run in the other direction from the word, I'm running from God's corrective hand and I'm running not away from trouble. I am running into trouble when I don't receive how he wants to use the word in my life. Rather, I need to ask the question, God, what are you teaching me? What are you showing me? And how are you trying to make me grow? Now, notice verse 5 of Hebrews chapter 11 there that we're looking at. He says in verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Do not regard that discipline of the Lord lightly and don't get weary. The word weary there means don't collapse on the track. Those of you who have done track, at some point in the race, you want to do what? You want to fall out. You feel like you're going to fall out. Years ago when I was a college student, I didn't realize we were going to be running one morning. So I went to the cafeteria and I ate pancakes for breakfast. Don't ever eat pancakes before you go running. And I went for my nice pancake breakfast to my Professor saying, you're going to get out and you're going to run. And I thought I was going to lose pancakes all over Liberty Mountain that afternoon. I mean, that morning. I tell you, it was, they were weary. We want to collapse. The word can also mean to be paralyzed. He's saying when God says you've got to run the race and you've got to stay after when he's disciplining us, don't collapse on the track. Now, verse 5, he, the next verb he's going to use here is he talks about God reproving us. Nor be weary when reproved by him. It's a more forceful verb there. And the idea there is to be exposed. And it's the idea that God exposes our sin. And he exposes our motives behind what we do. In other words, when God reproves us, he looks at us and he says, This is the problem. And this is why it is a problem. So when God reproves me, He not only points out what's going wrong, but He's going to point out to us why it is going wrong. And folks, my experience has been 90% or more of the issues that I struggle with in my life with sin and disobedience are related to pride. 90% of the time I find God says is that the root of this is a pride problem in your life. So he's going to discipline us, he's going to correct us. Next, he's going to take it a higher and he's going to move into that place of exposing what the problem is. And he's going to discipline us in that place of exposure and for the motives. Our tendency is to get mad with him. But when God begins to reprove us, he's saying this is in your life and it's coming in between you and me. 
It's become an idol in your life. Now, I want to give you four areas where we tend to set up idols. Number one, fear. How many times do we not do what God's calling us to do, become what God's calling us to become, because we're scared? Fear is an idol. It looks like an innocent idol, but it becomes an idol. And God will move in to remove fear from our lives. And usually the way he does that is putting stuff into our lives that scares the life out of us and saying, you've got to trust me through this. He doesn't remove the source of the fear. Sometimes the source gets more intense, but he says, you've got to trust me through this. You've got to walk with me through this. Second, sinful habits. God gave us ten commandments. When we start breaking those commandments, they become idols, the places where we're breaking. They become idols, and God says, I'm going to step in and discipline you and remove those. Third, and this is going to sound weird, our sense of inadequacy. Our sense of inadequacy. You say, how in the world can inadequacy be an idol? How in the world could inadequacy be a place where God has to discipline us? Let me show you how this works. Well, I would serve the Lord in this way, but I can't because of this. I don't have this. I don't have that. I'm not intelligent enough. I don't have enough background. I don't know the Bible well enough. I'm not enough of this. I'm not enough of that. How many of us excuse ourselves constantly from things that God wants to do in our lives and how He wants to use us because we constantly confess our inadequacy? And you see, that becomes an idol to us because it blocks us from fulfilling what God has for us. Rather, I am to confess His adequacy. I am to focus on his adequacy and stop focusing on my inadequacy. What did Paul say when he looked at a Roman empire that was opposed to what he was doing? When he looked at the Jewish religion that was opposed, when he looked at all the opposition, he didn't say I'm inadequate for the task. What Paul said was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is my confession. Not I can't, I can't, I can't, I don't have, I don't have. My confession has to be I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Relationships can become an idol in our lives. How many people walk away from the Lord because they've got to have a relationship with somebody? Particularly a romantic relationship with somebody. So I'm going to walk away from Christ because of that. They become an idol. God steps in. Sometimes he removes the relationship. Now, hold your finger in Hebrews chapter 12. And I want you to turn over a few pages to Hebrews chapter 5. Because this is how discipline affects our prayer life. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. And I'm throwing this at you this morning, but not that I'm going to give you all the answers on it. I'm throwing this at you because I want you to just take it home and work with it. In the days of his flesh, so when Jesus was living in the flesh, living in a human body, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. And although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience through what he suffered. 
Now notice what this says about the prayer life of Jesus. How did he pray? With loud cries and tears. And he was heard because of his reverence. The disciplining, corrective hand of God is going to impact our prayer life by bringing an intensity to our prayer life. See, most of the time when we pray intensely, it's because we want God to heal us of a sickness, or we want God to get us out of a jam that we've gotten ourselves into, or we want God to you know, swoop in and give us something. But that's not the case here with Jesus. And it's not that there's anything wrong with praying intensely during those times. But it says that he was offering up prayers and supplications. How? With loud cries and tears. And he was heard. You know, and as I was reading this and thinking about this, I, asked, I had to ask myself this question. When was the last time I got so serious and so intense with Jesus and wanted him to hear me and work and move in a situation, not to just get me out of a jam, not to help me feel better, not to meet a need in my life, but because I wanted to experience him and I wanted to see him do something in me, through me, and around me that couldn't be explained apart from Jesus, that I got down and I just began to cry and call out to God. You see, the problem is we don't want a Christianity that's that serious so often. We don't want it that's going to demand that much of us. But notice what it did when he did that. It says God heard him and God answered him. And folks, when we begin to seek God with that kind of intensity, that's when we're going to know an intensity of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. That's where we're going to know an intensity of the work of God. That's where we're going to know an intensity of God's work in us, around us, and through us. And may God give us a hunger and a thirst to see the Lord work in us and through us like that. When God disciplines us, it's often because He's trying to say, and I want to give it something to you now, because you're not ready for it, you've got to hold off. When my son was a junior in high school, he came to me and he said, Daddy, I want to get a job and I want a car. And I said, you can't get a job right now and you can't get a car because your schoolwork's got to come first and you're not ready to work a job and try to maintain a car and a job and maintain your grades at the same time. And of my son's 26 years, I was probably the most unpopular that I have been in the entire 26 years of his life when I told him that. We didn't come out of that conversation with him smiling at me and saying, I love you and I appreciate you and everything else. I could just read by his body language. He wasn't a happy camper with me. And uh, he got into his junior year in high school and he bit off chemistry. And chemistry bit into him a whole lot worse than he bit into it. And he was having to go to tutors and the whole bit to try to keep his head above water with chemistry. And he came to me later on and he said, Dad, I'm glad you told me I couldn't get a job and I couldn't get a car because there's no way I was going to be able to handle schooling as it turned out to be and have that stuff at the same time. And he said, I appreciate you making me wait. Sometimes God says you can't have what you want when you want it because you couldn't handle it if you got it. And I'm not going to let it destroy you. I love you too much to give you what you want 
when you want, the way you want it, because I know it's going to do you in if I do that. So when God says, wait, what do we tend to do? We tend to pitch a fit, and God doesn't love me anymore, blah, 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 instead of saying, I don't understand the work of God here, but God's got a reason for it. And I'm going to just flow with him in the reason for why he is holding it off the way that he is. Verse 6. It says that the next place is he chastises us. And that's when we just keep on being stubborn, not listening. And it really hurts when God begins to chastise us. He's showing us how immature we are, how far we've got to go, and how much pride we've got in our lives. Now, forgive me for all of my parent-child illustrations here, but that's sort of the way this passage is panning out here. When Jonathan was a little boy... Uh, we lived in Virginia Beach, and we lived on a street that had these little cul-de-sacs off of it with about five, four or five houses in the cul-de-sac. Now, when he was in preschool, he had a big wheel. I don't know if kids drive big wheels now, but back in Jonathan's day, the big wheel was the, the big thing. You got to use the big wheel. And it was a little three, you know, like a little, bicycle, little teeny bicycle, but he had the big wheel in the front. And he thought he was the man when he got on his big wheel, and he was riding around. Well, we had a rule. And the rule was you could drive your big wheel in the yard, you could ride your big wheel in the driveway, but you were not to drive your big wheel out there in that court. And you particularly were not to go out into the street. And the reason for that was he's a little guy, he's about two or three years of old age at the time, and I knew if he got out there with his big wheel into the courts, there's a good chance, or into the street, he's going to get hit. I mean, no one would even see him sitting up in a, in a vehicle. One day I'm out in the front yard, Jonathan's out there riding his big wheel, and he's getting closer and closer to the road. And then out in the road he goes. And he's on his big wheel, and he's having a big time on his big wheel out in the road. Well, if you had been there that day, you'd have seen a side of me most of you have never seen before. I tore through that yard, I went out there, I grabbed a hold of that big wheel with one hand, I grabbed a hold of his collar with the other hand, I pulled him up, and into the yard we went. And I had expressions on my face that probably would have scared the devil, I was so upset. And we got in that yard, and I got up in his face, and I said, don't you ever again take that big wheel out into that street again. And he's looking at me, yes sir, yes sir, yes sir, etc. Now, why did I intervene as fast as I did, as intensely as I did? Because I knew that the danger zone he was in demanded that kind of a reaction. It was not a time to look at him with a potential car coming on that could have hit him and hurt him or killed him and said, Son, you wonderful child, please don't take your big wheel out into the street right now. I went up there and grabbed him and I said, you get yourself into this yard and you get yourself into this yard right now and I'm going to drag you into this yard along with your big wheel coming behind you because I'm not taking any chances of you getting hurt. And folks, when God chastises us, he steps into our lives and yet he don't come across real nice and kind to us. He grabs us by the neck. He yanks us and our big wheel into his yard and he says, I got to do this and I'm doing this to keep you from being taken out. So the next time God steps in and he nails us with discipline like that. He's doing it because he loves us and he's knowing that something's coming our way. Now when my son went out in that street, he was totally oblivious to the cars. He was totally oblivious to the fact that he could lose his life or get maimed for life in this blink of an eye. 
But as his parent, I was aware of what was in the atmosphere. And when God steps in in disciplines like that, we may wonder why, but God knows why. He knows what he's trying to protect us from. And that's the reason he has to move as forcefully as he does. Now, verses 9 through 11, the purpose of discipline. The purpose of it, verse 10, he says, is to share in his holiness. He wants to make us holy, which basically means he wants to make us like his son. Verse 11, all maturing is painful. We never grow and mature in life, but it is not painful. Now, verse 11, he says he wants to produce within us the fruit of righteousness. If you want to get a fruit tree to produce more fruit, what do you do? You prune it. Can you imagine what it, if a tree could talk when you prune it, what the tree would say? Scream, a holler, cry, it hurts, it's just painful, etc. That's the only way you're going to get a tree to produce more fruit. He does the same thing in our lives. He's going to make us more like himself. That's what he has to do. Notice verse 11. It says the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The word peace there is the idea of the wholeness that God wants to produce in our lives and the quietness of soul that he wants to produce in our lives. And that peaceable fruit of righteousness, it, the word righteousness, big word, simply means to be like Jesus. Now let me explain what I think he's saying here to us. When God brings the discipline to our lives, whether it's a reproof, whether it is a correction, or whether he's coming in and chastising and, and yanking us out of the road, God's trying to do two things in your life, and please don't miss this. Number one, he is trying to produce within us his peace. And that peace means that deep down on the inside, we are at rest. Now, being lazy is not the same thing as being at rest. Being at rest means we're settled on the inside. At peace with the Lord. Trusting Him, we're at rest. Second is the idea of wholeness. He's making us whole and complete in who He is. Now, what's the purpose of that? Is to produce the fruit of being like Jesus in our lives. And what does it mean to be like Jesus? It doesn't mean that I just go through life saying and doing the right stuff. It means that my motives are like Jesus. My attitude is like Jesus. My words are like Jesus. You see, when I'm made like Jesus, it's from the inside out that he makes me like himself. Last Saturday night, when we got to my mother's house, she had dinner prepared for us. And my mother makes a really good pumpkin pie and I had, had meant to ask her if she would make pumpkin pie and I forgot and uh, it was too late to ask her and we got relief so I walked in and I thought she's probably not going to be making a pumpkin pie because it's not Thanksgiving or holiday season so I walked in and uh, I, I asked her I said we having dessert tonight that was sort of my way of trying to figure out what was going down <laughs> and she said oh yeah I made one of your favorites so I looked over the table and scanned it and I saw this cake sitting there. And she said, I made your favorite cake. And I knew right off the bat what it was. 
She remember making this when I was a kid. It was an angel food cake, but it's got an icing on it that is almond-based. And when I saw that cake, I knew what it was going to taste like, and I got all excited. Now, let me explain that icing to you. Any, any ordinary icing, forgive me for my English, okay? I don't know how she does it, and she won't give us a recipe, which frustrates me to death. Back in the fall, I just, Helen made an uh, angel food cake, and I tried making almond icing, and it was a disaster. I had almond abstract, and I was pouring all in that icing, and then my icing, for some reason, Mother gets this smooth icing. My stuff was about as hard as a rock. I about tore the cake to pieces trying to smooth the icing on it. I don't know what was wrong with it, but anyway... But she got that icing, and when you, when you bite into it, it's just got that unique almond flavor to it because she knows how to make it. But what in the world am I saying here? I'm saying this. When God disciplines us and he produces that fruit of Christ's likeness into us and people bite into our lives, they smell Jesus, they taste Jesus, and they know something is different because they just bumped in to Jesus and what he's doing in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, for many of us, we are in seasons of discipline. And we wonder, Lord, how long is this season going to last? And often the longer we walk with you, the longer the seasons of discipline seem to come. And the longer they seem to last, Lord. And it's tempting, Lord, to just focus on the hardship and want to just throw in the towel and give up. But, Lord, you have called us to consider Jesus. Lord, we will never know and live at your will if we don't endure the seasons of discipline. It is in that place of endurance that we discover you. Lord, take us to that place. Bring us, God, to that place. And Lord, as we are in that place often, help us, Jesus, to move with you, to move with your purpose as you correct us. At times, reprove us and expose what our motives are. And Lord, as you at times have to chastise us, grab us, pull us out of situations to protect us. Lord, we thank you. Thank you that your love is not an instant gratification type of love. It is a patient, staying with us, staying at it type of love. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, in just a moment as we sing, if you are here today and you have never given your life to Jesus Christ as we sing, I want to invite you to walk from where you are to where I will be and say, Pastor, today I want to follow Jesus and I want to walk with Jesus and I want to serve Him. I'd be so privileged and happy to pray with you about making the most important decision that you can make in life. If you're here today and you sense that God is saying to you, I want you to be part of this church family, I want you to join here and and take the journey with these folks. And I invite you to come and join here with us. And if you're here today and maybe you're saying, you know, I need to be baptized. And, and the Lord is working with me on that. And I want to come forward and ask for baptism. And I invite you to come. 
as a way of saying publicly through baptism, I'm identifying with Jesus and I'm walking with him. You need to pray and talk with the Lord. If you're going through a season of discipline, you just need to talk to him while we sing. I would invite you to talk with him about that and say, God, show me your purpose. And until that time comes, I'm going to just trust you and continue to trust you even if you don't show me the purpose. Because I know your ultimate purpose is to make me like you. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and sing and come if you will.